Is it, um, there we go. So this is just so that they can sync with me and show you what I'm seeing. And um, it's great to be here. I must say, I, they have been working me to the bone. I've been standing in front of a camera day after day getting recorded. And uh, I do all of Monday and Tuesday and then I fly off to Sweden where I speak at the new wine conference. So I'll be, I'll be quite, um, what should I say, uh, worked by the time I get home. <laughs> so what I want to talk about today is really on the topic of discipleship, but let's say a particular take on discipleship. And the name that the early Christians had that expressed discipleship was those on the way. So to be a follower of Jesus, the word disciple is a follower, and in, in, in the Jewish culture, you followed your master, and he was leading you in a direction or along a way. And so becoming a Christian isn't just praying the sinner's prayer and maybe having an experience. It's actually part of a lifelong journey. So here are just a few texts that tell us that this was the name the early Christians gave for themselves. Paul went to the high priest and asked him for letters so that, he, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the early persecution of those in the way. And then when there was a whole lot of riots in Ephesus, uh, Luke writes, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And then when Paul is on trial before the uh, governor, he says, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. And then there's a quote there that this phrase, the way, was found in the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, part of the Jewish society just before the time of Jesus. So it was an established idea that to be a disciple, you were somebody on the way. Later, the non-Christians in Antioch called the people of the way Christianoi, which means little Christs, and so now we call ourselves Christians. But actually, originally, we called ourselves those on the way. And so that means discipleship is about a journey or a walk, a progression, and it's about a journey in a story. And so what I'm all about today really is what is the story that we are on? Now, just to contextualize this, the vineyard has arisen in the last, you know, decades, and we have sort of been born into what is called the kingdom of God, mission and message of Jesus. And that's fairly recent kind of discovery of, of what Jesus was all about. And part of this is a shift towards the way we read the Bible and what I'm, going to call, what I'm calling a narrative reading of scripture. And in the last 80 to 100 years, there's a whole development that's happened in theology towards reading the scriptures in terms of the storyline. And this is part of the great cultural shift that's taken place in the last generation, from modernism to postmodernism, 
modernism, the enlightenment, the time where, you know, European philosophers and thinkers elevated science and reason and we are the superior group of people. And the result was that Christian faith was expressed in terms of doctrines. And that actually goes way back, centuries. Um, and the doctrine of God and the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of Christ. And normally a whole lot of sort of propositions that explain the doctrine. But the post-modern generation, which we think of as the millennial and Gen Z generation, don't really get high on doctrines, but resonate more with narratives or stories. And really, uh, stories are what makes us human beings what we are. Social scientists today are telling us that to be human, really, is to live inside a worldview or a story. And that's how you identify yourself and have a sense of self. So, for instance, all of us have a national story we're part of. You know, I, I'm a South African. I grew up with the Zulus. There's the history of the Zulu kingdom that was all around me. Then all around me were Indians and Mahatma Gandhi, you know, he grew up near me. Um, and then he went and liberated India. And uh, there's that story. And then there's the story of Mandela. And, you know, that identifies me. So when the Springboks win the World Cup, that's why I'm screaming, because I identify with them, because they're part of my story. And, and you guys have got the story here of, I mean, such history um, in this country that identifies you in the way that you tell the story. And then we each have a family story. I can tell the story of my English ancestor who landed in South Africa, and then my father who met my mother in Switzerland in the war, and all sorts of bravery and weird things. I should never have been born, but I did get born, and that's part of my story, see? So we all live in a story, and when it goes back to Scripture, Jesus is the greatest storyteller ever. He didn't come preaching propositions and doctrines. He told stories about farmers and landlords and crops and um, that resonated with the people. And for hours and hours, they hung on his words as he told these great stories. And of course, the story about him is the greatest story ever told. So if we are getting into this narrative approach, we're, we're really in a good place with the culture today, and we happen to be in a good place with Jesus and the original disciples of Jesus. So God has actually chosen narrative as the vehicle he has used to reveal himself to us. Basically, there are three stories. There's the story of Israel, there's the story of Jesus, and there's the ongoing story of world missions that we are part of. And our kingdom of God um, doctrine or narrative, whatever we, you'd like to call it, that identifies us as a movement in the vineyard, it all has arisen in this narrative understanding. So, what then is the story, the big story of the kingdom in Scripture? And here's where you'll see why my PowerPoints are important to me. The biblical story develops from beginning to end in a way of thinking that was very familiar to the ancients, called a chiasm. It comes from the Greek word chai in the Greek letter 
in the Greek alphabet, and it's like a sort of X lying on its side. And the point of chiasms is they move from the bigger picture down to a central point and then expand from there. And in these chiasms, the outer extremities are equivalent to each other. And then the next layer in, the B is equivalent to B. And the next layer in, C is equivalent to C. But always the driving point is the middle of the chiasm that everything revolves around. And the whole biblical story is told like this. And it is a story of vocation and representation, of God's calling for humanity and the failure of humanity and therefore other plans God has put in place through representation so that the story moves forward. And it moves from creation to new creation. You don't need to read the Bible a lot to work out. Genesis 1 and 2, creation, right? Last chapters of the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth, new creation. And the whole Bible story is like book ended from creation to new creation. And then the next layer inwards is that when God made mankind male and female, Genesis 1, and after he made us, he was very proud. He said, it is very good, remember? And he said, be fruitful and multiply and basically rule the earth. And twice over it says, rule creation. And so to be in the image of God is to be a little king, a vice regent under God, the great king, and to rule nature on his behalf. And the destiny of humanity, one day, when there's a great company from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping and there's the new humanity, then there can come about a new creation. But did we mess up this mandate? And look at, look at nature today, look at global warming, look at the mess, look at the, the greed of humanity and the you know, destruction of everything. And it all began because humanity lost touch with God. And so if you go the story, you know, eventually Genesis 11, all the nations and the Tower of Babel, and so God chooses Abraham, and God calls Israel to be his vice-regent nation, to do what humanity has failed to do. But the problem is Israel eventually fails to do that as well. And having had a moment of doing it really under David and Solomon, um, they rebel against God, they go into idolatry, they get sent into exile, and Israel fails to be God's representative and vice-regent. And so the prophets talk about a remnant in Israel, and the hope was that maybe through exile and return, they will learn a few things and get purified, and then there will be this faithful group within the nation that will be the servants of God. But eventually, they fail. And so the story boils down to one person. And in the Old Testament, this one servant of God, in the, in the book of Isaiah, he's called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And in the book of Daniel, he's called the son of man. And both of them uh, have within, the, within them the idea that the nation gets embodied in the destiny of one person who can obey God and turn the nation around, 
and in that sense turn humanity around. And so that's what happens through Jesus. And from Jesus, you get this expansion happening. And these numbers would have been very well understood in the time of Jesus. He chose 12 disciples representing 12 tribes. He was reinstituting the nation of Israel, starting it up again as a new Israel. The number 70 was the number of all the nations at the Tower of Babel that rebelled against God. And so this new Israel is going to reach back to all the nations. And then the 120 on the day of Pentecost, that was the number needed for a Sanhedrin in Judaism. So it's like the new governing um, structure of this new people of God is in place. And then, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then you have this rapid expansion. 3,000 people get converted, 5,000, and then after that, Luke can't count anymore. And the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea, all over the world. And the church, the worldwide church, is born and starts reaching back into all of humanity. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the final end will come. And so that's the massive story of Scripture. Now, that story has sort of superimposed on it another very interesting story, and that is because of the way the, pro- the, way the prophets thought, God deals with humanity in terms of two ages. This age, which in the Hebrew language is haolam hazeh, which is the age of bondage and defeat and pagan kingdoms and oppression. And one day, that whole progression in history is going to come to a climactic end, which is called the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And only after that, will there be a new world called the Haolam Habada, age to come, where there will be the new creation. And the wonderful, remarkable, supernatural, unexpected thing that happened is that in Jesus, that future world that we dream about, that God has promised, arrived in the present. And so everything about Jesus is the beginning of the new creation the way he set the captives free, the way he healed the sick, what he did when he died and rose again. This is God's beginning, the new creation, so that history has turned around, like humanity has a chance again of, of, a, of a rebirth. And, and the result is that most of humanity that doesn't know Jesus is still living in like the old humanity, the old Adam, but born in this world, in and through the church, is a new humanity. And our calling is to take the new humanity to all of humanity until God's purposes are fulfilled. So what we believe is really expressed quite clearly in those two diagrams. Just delving a little bit more, the two stories, the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. So the Bible is about two stories. After the Bible, there's the story of the church, which is our story. And the story of Israel progresses through three major steps where God comes and reveals himself as the king who liberates his people. Through Moses and the Exodus, David during his monarchy, and then the prophets prophesying. One day God will come and do this in a grand way. And then God comes in Jesus. 
and it's the story of his life and ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that's the whole story. And the Old Testament relates to the New Testament in terms of promise and fulfillment. Everything that happened in Jesus has a prehistory, this growing expectation in the Old Testament. And to be able to tell the big story of the kingdom, we need to sort of have a roadmap like that so that we're clear about it. And so every time we preach, teach, discuss, speak to a friend, this is really the grand story that we are living in. This is the mental architecture within which we arrange the furniture. And, and uh, we need to not get lost in the details sometimes. We need to just understand this is the grandness of the story that we have. And we need to learn to tell this story simply, but also with all its grandeur. And I think it's such a grand story, isn't it? I mean, no other people on earth has a story like we've got. And we need to realize that obviously when you're witnessing to a friend or a neighbor, you can't download this whole story every time. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit to which part of the story is relevant in that moment, in that time. Which part of the story of Jesus we tell, for instance. But whichever part we're doing, and as a church, you may be preaching a series on some book of the Bible, and that's what you're drilling down to, but you must always remember, you're telling the story as part of this big story. That's the framework that we operate in. That's what gives us a sense of identity. And so we must repeat it among ourselves. We must massage it into our culture. And, um, you know, I know Alice is a frequent preacher here, and I've been you know, hearing things about her that make her glow in the dark. Um, and you might not know, but I've been trying to brainwash her for a couple of years. And I know she's been telling you some of this story. Um, and we need to somehow equip our youth ministries, kids ministries, new believers, young adults. Somehow we need to get the story clear with all of us. Um, and it won't just happen in a moment. It's a, it's a repetitive thing. And it's important that every part of the story of Jesus is told. We don't just have a slice of Jesus. And it's not like a story outside of me, I'm just talking about history. Actually, what happens is his story becomes my story. And I start entering into his story and his story enters into my story. And so he is my master on the way. And I walk beside him or behind him on the way. And I'm in the story myself. And you as a community are in the story. And the way we think about why we're here, what are we doing in this church, is we must define it inside the story. We define the church as the representative new humanity for all of humanity and for all of creation. So, that story intersects for us in the day-by-day -day life we live with other stories. Let's call this the story of the kingdom that I've just run through very, very, in very great summary. There's also the story of the church through the centuries, the story of world missions, 
which in terms of the kingdom is really the story of revivals and the expansion of the church. And we know in between revivals, it's like the tide comes back and sometimes the church shrinks a little bit and then it grows again. Um, but revivals fuel the growth and evangelism of the church. And of course, here in this part of the world, there's the history of the Welsh revival. Um, and the vineyard story, if you're part of this church, we have our story of revivals that are part of the story of the revivals and the mission of the church. Um, and it's interesting, it's a bit depressing because it probably shows my age, but wherever I go in the world today now, they say, tell us the stories of the beginning of the vineyard. Because only old people like you were there. And um, so, you know, this movie is coming out called uh, The Jesus Revolution about Lonnie Frisbee. And I actually got into the vineyard because we had the Jesus People revival in Cape Town and thousands of young hippies were converted. And then Lonnie Frisbee, who was the leader of the hippies in California, came looking for his people. And I invited him to stay in my home and he started becoming a visitor, a frequent visitor. And we saw tremendous phenomena of the power of God and then he'd say to me you know you must meet my pastor my pastor is John Wimber and so I got to host John Wimber when he came to Cape Town and um, I can tell stories about amazing things and then but later I, I'm amazed that it's 30 years ago now but there was the Toronto revival that hit a lot of our churches and we had the same sort of incredible power phenomena and it fueled the planting and growth of churches all over the world um, and don't we long for the next great move of the Holy Spirit where we've got new stories to tell and there will be another move of the Holy Spirit because that's what God does he keeps coming um, and inside of that you've got your story and I do hope you have a story with God you know I have a story with God. I, I was a real little pagan at an Anglican school, which didn't help me unpaganize. And then an evangelist came and preached, and I had a radical conversion. So radical that my father wanted me to be sent to a psychologist. But God won because my father got baptized a bit later. And, um, you know, I can tell my story over the years of all the things that I've seen God do. And you need to, if you don't have a story with God where you can talk about where you first started to realize God was real and maybe then when he started entering into your life and then the things he's done, you need to come and ask Jesus into your life and join this grand story so that you have a story with God. And I want to come back at the end to ask you that question again. So we are people who live in this story. Now, when we look at, say, Europe today, and the stats aren't encouraging of the church, it's like shrinking comparative to the world population. And we think, well, will we, as the new people of God, succeed in reaching all nations so that eventually there can come the new creation? Um, but when you look at the global story, it's much more encouraging. 
And because I come from Africa, um, I live in the sort of, you know, doorway between the two societies, if you like. And I did a little bit of research a way back, and I'm sure it should be updated. But we are part of the charismatic sector of the church. By that we mean we believe the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation. We still pray for the sick. We operate in prophetic gifts. And uh, in that sense, we are part of a worldwide Pentecostal charismatic movement. And that sector of global Christianity was 6% in 1980 and grew to 25% by 2020. And then he has a researcher called Ralph Martin. In 1992, the numbers of Pentecostals and Charismatics had grown to over 410 million and now comprised 24.2% of world Christianity. My research has led me to make the bold statement, in all of human history, no other non-political, non-militaristic, voluntary human movement has grown as rapidly as the Pentecostal charismatic movement in the last 25 years. So we are sort of like a plague, a holy plague, that is growing, not only in proportion to global Christianity, but here's another interesting stat. Today, one in four Christians in the world's world identifies as Pentecostal charismatic, with Pentecostalism growing at roughly four times the rate of the world's population itself. And if you read about, for instance, what's happening in China today, the unbelievable growth of the Chinese underground church, millions. And there are also stories of these discipleship movements in Arabic-speaking countries today, of more and more people finding Christ. Um, the gospel is actually growing in, in the world. But you know, why would one portion of the Christian church not really be growing numer numerically and another portion be growing, I think it's the story we tell. I think it's the story we live in, especially the story that the power of the Holy Spirit still works today and we can uh, be effective in evangelism and, and world missions because we can ongoingly live, let's say, in the Pentecostal dimension of the Holy Spirit. So, what I'm going to do now, how long have I been talking? Not too long. All right, so I've got two last things where I'm going to sort of get a little bit more detailed. Let's drill down into the story we tell a little bit more. I said it, it's the story of Israel and the story of Jesus, and that leads to the story of the church. Now, I just should say that a few years ago, some of your leaders and some other leaders said to me, try and see if you can write a new vineyard statement of faith. And I was entirely paralyzed by such an idea. But I've been working with a group of people around the world in the last year, and I've, I've developed a draft, and I don't know if it'll land on the vineyard planet anywhere, but I'm really talking out of it now. And what I, it's really concentrated my mind in the sense of saying, how can we get this big kingdom of God thing we have in the vineyard and narrow it down to a quick, short way of telling the story? And so this, this is my attempt, and I'm going to just talk you through it. So God created humanity in his image, male and female, for relationship with himself and to govern the earth. That's that whole mandate 
thing that I talked about. When humanity failed in this calling and became corrupted by sin, God raised up the people of Israel as his vehicle to reach all the nations of the earth. And this is how he came and revealed himself to Israel. Through the Mosaic revelation of the kingdom, Yahweh defeated the gods and powers of Egypt, liberating his people, entering into covenant with them as his vassal community, and making them a royal and priestly nation, where they now are the servants of God in place of failed humanity. And notice the, the word liberation there. There's a kind of idea out there in the world today that we don't like the Old Testament. We don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's a God of wrath. We like the God of the New Testament. He's a God of love. You know, the only problem with that is the last book of the Bible is full of the wrath of God. Um, so you can't rub it out. And actually, the story of God in the Old Testament is God the great liberator. Same God as has come in Jesus. And it starts off where he does this great act of liberating his people and he makes them into his people. And he doesn't just liberate them out of slavery. He takes them into the land flowing with milk and honey. And for a generation under David and Solomon, the Garden of Eden is like created again. A new creation starts to happen. They have this flourishing nation. Through the Davidic revelation of the kingdom, God liberated Israel from oppression came to live among them on his throne in the temple and ruled them through anointing and adopting David and Solomon, causing Israel to experience shalom. And shalom meant the good, prospering life. Every man living under his own vine and his own fig tree and the sense of total well-being because God, God was blessing them. But we know they messed up and they started after David and Solomon the kings degenerated and they started worshiping idols and they went into exile and they were in bondage. And then the prophets start to hear God say, no, but what he did before under Moses and David, he, he can, he's going to do it again, but on a much greater scale. And so through the prophetic revelation of the kingdom, Israel's failure in her calling through idolatry leading to exile was followed by the hope of Yahweh returning to reign through his presence in a new temple, the transformation of Israel's disobedient heart, and a new humanity raised from the dead at the end of the age. So by the time you end the Old Testament, there's this wonderful, huge expectation of a new day that will dawn. And then we come to the story of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to itemize it here because I want you to be able to see it for a while. And I think we can summarize the whole of the gospel that we preach, the gospel of the kingdom in this sentence. The good news is that God has come as he promised he would. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. And the whole of the Old Testament story is this gigantic promise of what God will one day do. And then Jesus arrives and God fulfills his promise. And what has God come to do? He has not come to do a small little thing. See, in the Western Protestant world, it's almost like the gospel has been shrunk down to, you know, Jesus died on the cross so that I can have my sins forgiven so that when I die, I can go to heaven. And who knows what people think of as heaven. Maybe it's a sort of cloud cuckoo land or something that we fly away to. And I mean, that's all true. Jesus, um, we're going to come to that. But it's a much bigger story than that, you see? 
So what has God come to do? Actually, he's come to renew all things, including a renewed humanity in his image and a renewed creation. That's where the story is going to end. And he's come to do that by his kingdom coming like his kingdom came to Israel of old, but in a more wonderful way. And his kingdom has come personified in Jesus through anointing Jesus as the Christ and King. And Jesus is really the embodiment of the new world that God has created. And it is the whole story of Jesus, back to this narrative understanding. It's the whole story of Jesus. God has come to reign through the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ as King. And see, every one of those brings God to us and salvation to us with a different nuance. And we need the whole thing. And, and one of the things that I think perhaps is why some parts of the Christian church haven't been growing is they've tended to like boil it down just to the death of Jesus on the cross and that caricature that I gave earlier. And they're not actually preaching what I call the full gospel of the kingdom. It's the whole story of Jesus. And so we take it one by one. God has come through the ministry and message of Jesus to confront the power of Satan and liberate humanity from sin, sickness, demons, religious oppression, death, and injustice and poverty. I love that one song we sang. It had a line um, about Jesus and the strong man's house. It's like the fourth to last song we sang. Is it still there? I, I haven't heard that before, but it is the most brilliant exposition of the theology I'm trying to teach you. Because it's all about Jesus as the great liberator. And you know, I love to just tell the stories about the kinds of things Jesus did. How he healed the sick. How he exercised and liberated people from the demonic. How he welcomed those that the society and the religious system of the day had excluded and they were welcome at his table. How he had compassion on the poor and fed them miraculously. And how he ruined funeral services and raised people from the dead. I mean, such wonderful things. And it's important that we tell people, as the book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still does these things. Through the gifts of the Spirit, he still comes. And he heals sick people. And he liberates people from... One of those lines was about depression and being liberated from depression. What, you know, or the demonic, whatever. And so, if you are a visitor here and you've never really come into this journey, you can't just know about the story of Jesus. You must personally welcome and invite Jesus to be your liberator. Whatever it is, that you know your life is not whole, Jesus is present today by the Holy Spirit and he can change a person's life and set them free. And we all have to come to the point in our lives where we personally say, Jesus, I need you to liberate me. And we invite him into our lives. God has come through the death of Jesus as the day of judgment occurring in advance to liberate humanity from the penalty of sin. This is such good news. Jesus explained his death 
as the end of the world day of judgment occurring now in his death and resurrection. So, you know, in the Bible, humanity will one day stand before God, the great judge, the end of history, and there will be a separation between those who go to eternal life and those who go to eternal death. And this is the reality of what the Bible says is going to happen. But Jesus took that future judgment day and he took all that is wrong with us, he brought it into himself, and he was judged on the cross. And he says, if you believe in me, you will never have to enter into judgment in the future. You have already passed from death to life. And so when you accept Jesus into your life, part of it is saying, I accept what you did for me on the cross, that you took all the judgment that I might deserve, and you canceled it. Isn't that a big word in our culture, being canceled? Well, here's another way of being canceled. Having your guilt canceled. And knowing that you are free from forever from the fear of God's judgment or God's wrath. And again, we need to personally say to, to Jesus, Jesus, I accept from you what you did for me on the cross. But it gets better. You know in the adverts, it gets better. You know those adverts. Well, this gets better. It's not just that God wants to remove your sin. He wants to give you the power to live a new life. And so God came through the resurrection of Jesus to triumph over the powers of darkness and give the rebirth or eternal life to humanity. And this thing we can use it glibly, the born-again experience, but being born again is a big deal. It's where, through the Holy Spirit, the power that Jesus came from out of the grave with, the power of immortality, the, the power to live forever, is breathed into us and born in us by the Holy Spirit. And begotten in me is a new nature. See, my problem isn't just that I have failed sometimes or not lived a full life. My problem is that my nature is depraved. And I need a new me born inside of me that really is in the image of God. And that's what the born again experience does. And Paul tells us that if we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, sin will no longer have dominion over us. We can really walk into the future in the way and increasingly change for the better, be transformed because of the resurrection of Jesus and its power working in us. And that's again something that if you didn't realize that's what's going on, you need to invite the Lord to work this into your life. And then God has come through the ascension of Jesus to pour out on his disciples the same anointing of the Spirit that was on him, empowering them to announce and demonstrate the kingdom of God to all nations, to the ends of the earth and the end of the age. See, it's not just that Jesus died so that I can have my sins forgiven, so when I die, I can go to heaven. Actually, I am saved to join God in the war for humanity's soul, to be part of his great mission to reach back into all nations. And for that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. Jesus said to his disciples, don't even try, don't even leave Jerusalem 
until you are empowered with the Holy Spirit. And, and when he ascended, he unleashed the Pentecostal power of the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Pentecostal, let's say, charismatic dimension, we can start operating in gifts, prophetic gifts, healing gifts, words of knowledge, revelatory gifts. And that's what enables us to reach across to a person sitting at Starbucks coffee shop that you've never seen before and God suddenly tells you what's going on in their life and you walk up and, and you know, you can shorten evangelism down to a very quick thing if you're operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit or you find a sick person and you pray for them and they get healed. It's not difficult to say to them, hey, wouldn't you like the whole package now? The whole of Jesus in your life. And, and I think that's why the Pentecostal charismatic part of the church is growing is because we really believe that Pentecost is an ongoing empowering that is available to us now. But all of this is moving us to the great hope. Christians are the most hopeful people on earth. We have a great dream and a great vision. God will come at the end of the age to execute final judgment, raise the dead in Christ to eternal life, and create a new heaven and a new earth. But our faith in that grand future is not just based on a fantasy because we can see it already happening in Jesus. The future has been born already, the new creation. Watch Jesus move, see him die, see him rise, and you can see the beginning of the new creation. Not only is that the case, but that power is actually inside of us, working inside of us. We are now already part of the new creation. And so because of that, we are part of the good news for the sad, divided world around us. And we can tell them, look, there's a new future you can have because we've already got it now. And so my question to you, ending my PowerPoint, is where are you? Are you on the way? Are you on this journey? Do you have a history with God? And if you don't have a history with God, today is an invitation. Why don't you decide to let the story enter into you and become your story. Why don't you invite Jesus to come and be your great liberator? He knows everything about what you're struggling with. He can come and set you free. Why don't you specifically ask him to cancel all your sins because he bore it on the day of judgment when he died? Why don't you ask him to come and beget inside of you supernaturally a new nature that will give you the power to live a life that you've never lived before. You can, you can ask somebody to pray for you this morning. You can, you can invite God into your life. And if you've done all of that, don't think now you can just sit here and you know, be on a permanent holiday until the end. No, 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 you've got to join the army of God. You've got to seek God until you have an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you go and do wild things for God by operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants you to do. That's the big story.